You're listening to the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast. Richard Collier is about to begin an incredible journey into another realm, another lifetime, in search of the love he could never find in this one. That's Elise McKenna. Starred in a play in the hotel theater. When was this play done? 1912. Dr. Finney, is time travel possible? That is a question. Arthur? Arthur? You're the only one who can help me. Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour, Christopher Plummer, somewhere in time. Someday, in the past, he will find her. And that is the trailer for the 1980 American romantic fantasy drama film Somewhere in Time, directed by Jeanal Zwork and starring Christopher Reeve, Jane Seymour, and Christopher Plummer. It is a film adaptation of the 1975 novel Bid Time Return by Richard Matheson, who also wrote the screenplay. The film is known for its musical score composed by John Barry, featuring pianist Roger Williams. Hi, I'm Andy, and I like movies. All kinds of movies. Movies from old Hollywood. That's the movies before 1968. Movies from new Hollywood. Those are the films from 68 to 2000 and films from modern Hollywood. Those are the films from 2000 until today. And today we will look at a new Hollywood film, Somewhere in Time, a romantic drama, just in time for Valentine's Day. Somewhere in Time was filmed on location at the Grand Hotel located on Mackinac Island in Michigan. It was made and released about five years after its source novel, Bid Time Return, by Richard Matheson, was first published. The book won the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel in 1976. 
The film got made because Universal Pictures owed director Juno Zwork, I apologize if I'm butchering that name, a favor because Jaws 2 had been the studio's biggest box office performer of 1978. The budget for Somewhere in Time was originally set at $8 million, but the studio cut it in half to $4 million and would only greenlight the film with such a reduction on account of a belief and resistance by studio executives that the film had limited appeal. The time travel aspect of the film had no visual effects or a time machine. You gotta remember this was the post-Star Wars era in Hollywood. The agent for Christopher Reeve, hot off the Superman films, laughed in the face of producer Stephen Deutsch when he was told what salary his client would be offered for the role. He refused to have Reeve read the script or even to allow Reeve to hear about it. Knowing he could not proceed without a star, Deutsch clandestinely slipped Reeve the script in his hotel room. Reeve called the next day and said he loved the script and would accept the role. Jane Seymour suggested composer John Barry as a candidate to compose the score, but director Gino Zwork balked at the idea, saying that because of their tight budget, they couldn't even afford to ask him. But Seymour said that Barry was a friend of hers and that she would ask him. She told Barry about the project, he loved it, and agreed to do it. Now, many of the extras and background artists in this movie were residents of the movie's principal shooting location of Michigan's Mackinac Island. It's interesting to note that automobiles are not allowed on Mackinac Island, so the use of cars for the movie required special permission from the town. Although cars were allowed for the filming, the cast and crew weren't allowed to drive them outside of actually filming for the movie. We start, as all good romantic comedies do, with some funky 70s tune. We dissolve into a frenzied scene that turns out to be after a performance of a play, and a caption reads, Millfield College, May 1972. The center of attention here is a playwright, Richard Collier, Christopher Reeve. In the middle of this commotion, an elderly lady, Susan French, comes up to Richard, places something in his hand, and says, Come back to me. This something turns out to be an old-timey pocket watch. we cut to the elderly lady returning home with a smile on her face. How was the play? Did you enjoy it? She ignores her friend, who we find out later is her biographer, Laura Roberts, played by Teresa Wright of Shadow of a Doubt fame, who will give Richard important plot points later on, and heads back to her room, puts on a record, and reminisces about something. We later find out she passes away while listening to this song on that night. We cut to eight years later, 
Richard, now a successful playwright, we know this by the various awards and play posters on his wall, heads out of his office in frustration. Something is bothering him and preventing him from writing. He runs into his agent. Aha! Aha, what? Aha, where you going? I'm going on a trip. Where? I have no idea. What about the play? Well, it isn't done. Okay, when will it be done? I don't know. Oh my God. Richard, there are people waiting for that play. Richard, suffering from writer's block, heads to the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island in Michigan. He bumps into an elderly porter named Arthur, Bill Irwin. Is this your first time here, Mr. Uh... Collier? Yeah, for some reason I never got around to coming here. I always heard how nice it was, though. Oh, when was that? Oh, about eight years ago. So I used to be a student up at Millfield College. Yeah, the students come here now and then to enjoy the restaurant and the rooms. <laughs> it seems to me I remember they had a graduation prom here back in uh, 47, was it? This is an important plot point. Oh, really? Uh, you've been here that long? Well, I've been here since 1910. <laughs> 1910? Uh-huh. Came here with my parents when I was five years old. Really? My father was a desk clerk. I used to drive him crazy playing ball in the lobby. He got so mad at me sometimes. I'm lucky I live to be six. Three, George. <laughs> After showing Richard to his room, Arthur has a moment. There you go. Thank you, Mr. Collier. If there's anything I can do for you, just let me know. My name's Arthur, and I live in the bungalow behind the hotel. Okay, thanks a lot. See you around, Arthur. Have we ever met before? Have we ever... No, no, I don't think so. No. No, I'm sure we haven't. Have a nice stay here, Mr. Collier. Okay, thanks a lot. Richard kills time before dinner, strolling around the hotel and wanders into the Hall of History. In there, he sees various artifacts of the hotel's history. He is drawn to a picture on the wall. It's a picture of a young lady. We discover it is of a young actress by the name of Elise McKenna, Jane Seymour, who performed at the hotel many, many years ago, 1912 to be exact. So while Richard discovers important plot information about Elise and her manager, William Fawcett Robinson, Christopher Plummer, and perseverates about Elise, who he will learn is the elderly lady that gave him the pocket watch eight years ago, information given to him and the audience by the aforementioned friend and biographer. Let's talk about Christopher Reeve, the son of an upper-class family whose patronage can be linked all the way back to the Mayflower. Christopher Reeve was born in New York City on September 25, 1952. Reeves studied at Cornell University while at the same time working as a professional actor. In his final year at Cornell, he was one of two students selected, Robin Williams was the other, to study at New York's famous Juilliard School. In 1979, Reeves was cast in the Broadway play A Matter of Gravity opposite Katherine Hepburn, as well as the soap opera Love of Life. And then in 1978, his first Hollywood film, was a very small part as a junior officer in the 1978 naval submarine disaster movie, Grey Lady Down, starring Charlton Heston. 
He then acted in the play My Life at the Circle Repertory Company with his good friend William Hurt. During the run of that show, he was seen by a casting agent who asked him to audition for the lead role of Clark Kent and Superman in the big-budget film Superman in 1978. Reeve was never a Superman or comic book fan, though he had watched The Adventures of Superman as a kid, and Reeve found the role offered a suitable challenge because it was a dual role. He said, there must be some difference stylistically between Clark Kent and Superman. Otherwise, you just have a pair of glasses standing in for a character. Well, Superman was a huge hit, and Reeve became an instant superstar. He would follow that up with the film Superman 2, which was filmed at the same time as the first Superman film. But he turned down a massive amount of action hero roles after Superman, wanting to do more interesting work. So his first post-Superman movie was Somewhere in Time. After his back-to-back -back Superman roles, Reeve grew tired of Hollywood and took his family to Williamstown, Massachusetts, where he played the lead in a successful run of The Front Page, and then was in Lanford Wilson's Fifth of July on Broadway. In 1982, Reeve starred opposite Michael Caine in Sidney Lumet's film adaptation of the Ira Levin play Death Trap. Uh, that same year, Reeve portrayed corrupt Catholic priest John Flaherty in Monsignor. And next would reprise his role as Clark Kent Superman in Superman 3. In 1984, he appeared in The Bostonians, an accomplished pilot. He next did the film The Aviator in which he performed all his own aerial stunts. Fascinated with dinosaurs since he was a child, he hosted the PBS documentary Dinosaur in 1985 and played Count Vronsky in a TV movie adaptation of Anna Karenina. Still turning down many, many action roles, he agreed to do the crime thriller Street Smart opposite a young actor who would receive his first Academy Award nomination for this role a young actor by the name of Morgan Freeman. Next up was the god-awful Superman 4, and then appeared in the comedy Switching Channels, which was a modern-day adaptation of the classic film The Front Page. He starred opposite Burt Reynolds and Kathleen Turner, and this movie was awful. In the late 1980s, Reeve took up horse riding lessons and trained five to six days a week for competition in combined training events. He also was accomplished sailor, and built his own sailboat. In 1990s, Reeve starred in the American Civil War film The Rose and the Jackal, in which he played Alan Pinkerton, head of President Lincoln's new Secret Service, but did take a paycheck for The Great Escape 2, The Untold Story, a TV movie. And next would play Lewis in Remains of the Day, a film that was deemed an instant classic and was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Flipping back to a theater-inspired film, he was the lead role in the movie comedy Noises Off, and then did a series of TV films, the most notable being Bump in the Night, in which Reeve played a child molester who abducts a young boy. A series of forgettable films followed, uh, Speechless, co-starring Michael Keaton, and then a remake of Village of the Dam, directed by John Carpenter, and then played a paralyzed police officer in the HBO movie Above Suspicion. In 1995, Reeve was offered the lead in Kidnapped, and he also planned to direct his first big screen film, a romantic comedy entitled Tell Me True. 
However, both these films were canceled when Reeb suffered an injury while horseback riding, shattering his first and second vertebrae. This caused a cervical spinal injury, which paralyzed him from the neck down. He would spend the next two years rehabbing from this injury. Later, Reeve said that he was glad to be alive, not out of obligation to others, but because life was worth living. He would require round-the-clock care for the rest of his life. But this would not stop him from performing every now and then. He played the lead role of Jason Kemp in a TV movie remake of the Alfred Hitchcock thriller Rear Window in 1998. He also did guest appearances on The Practice and the Superman-inspired TV series Smallville. He would pass from complications from his paralysis on October 10th, 2004, at the age of 52. Dr. Finney, uh, you'll have to walk with me, young man. I have another class. What's your name? Richard goes to see Dr. Finney at Mayfield College, George Vosevich, and asks a question. I have a question for you, sir. Shoot. Is time travel possible? That is a question. Now, I got to admit, this is very much a go-with-me-here moment in this film. Yes, sir. So I suggest you do, too. I was in Venice in 1971. Dr. Finney sets up the laws of time travel, at least for this film. Understand? Yes, sir. So, in other words, then, the location is very important. Not all important, but essential. The rest is here. So, while Richard attempts to time travel to meet Elise... Let's chat about the director of this film, Jeannot Jouarc. Born in Paris, France in 1939, Jeannot Jouarc made a name for himself as a director of television in the 1960s. Starting with two episodes of Ironside, he also did TV series like It Takes a Thief, The Virginian, The Bold Ones, Matt Lincoln, Longstreet, Sarge, Marcus Welby, M.D., and 19 episodes of Night Gallery. It was while he was working on Night Gallery that he met production designer Joe Alvis, who recommended him for the director's position of Jaws 2. And while that sequel does not even come close to living up to the classic status of the original Steven Spielberg Jaws, it was a good enough sequel that it was the number one movie for Universal Pictures in 1978, triggering a clause in his contract that allowed Zwerk to work on another film of his choosing. And of course, he chose Somewhere in Time. He was also the director of Santa Claus, the movie, in 1985. After that, it was back to TV for him, directing episodes of Supergirl, The Rockford Files, Providence, Boston Public, Ally McBeal, The Practice, Jag, Without a Trace, Heroes, Cold Case, Smallville, Fringe, Supernatural, Castle, Bones, and Grey's Anatomy. And of this recording, he's still active, well into his 80s. It's June 27th, 1912. Oh boy. You are lying on your bed in the Grand Hotel... And it is 6 p.m. in the evening of June 27th, 1912. Your mind accepts this absolutely. After a long sequence of Richard attempting to go back in time, and I do mean a long sequence, Richard, of course, is successful. If he wasn't, there wouldn't be a movie. And finds himself at the Grand Hotel in 1912. Richard runs into a young Arthur.
Not inside, Arthur. Richard heads over to the theater to see if he can meet Elise McKenna and watches the show she is going to be in rehearsals for. I do not so regard her. Yes, you do. And you shall not marry her. And I say I shall have her. Not in my life. You shall not. Give it, Cecily. It's not your place to say. Yes, it's... He is told to look for her by the lake. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for Miss McKenna. Oh, most likely walking by the lake, my dear. Thank you. <clears throat> oh, what is sorry. Excuse me. He heads over to the lake, and by the musical score, you can tell that he finally gets a glimpse of this beauty. She asks, Is it you? Well, it was this sequence that my 20-year-old self fell head over heels in love with Jane Seymour. And if I'm being honest, my modern-day self felt a little pang when yes. re-watching this sequence as well. Are you all right? Yes, yes, I'm quite right. I'm sorry if I startled you. No, you didn't startle I think I did. I'll take you into dinner now. They are interrupted by her manager. May I speak to you, please? So, while Lisa and Richard are kept apart by the evil manager, Mr. Robinson, in a mustache-twirling turn by Mr. Plummer, and since the music is such an integral part of this film, let's talk about the composer, John Barry. Born in 1933 in York, England, Barry spent his early years working in cinemas owned by his father and quickly developed an ear for the music that goes along with a movie. In 1957, he formed his own band, the John Barry Seven, and made his debut composing and arranging music for television in 1958. Unimpressed with the work Monty Norman had done for the first James Bond movie, Dr. No, which was the subject of a Bank of Marcus Movies podcast way back on episode six, so you might want to check that out, James Bond producers Harry Salzman and Cubby Broccoli reached out to Barry, and a partnership was born. He composed the scores for 11 of the James Bond films between 1963 and 1987, as well as arranging and performing the James Bond theme. He wrote the Grammy and Academy Award-winning scores to the films Dances with Wolves and Out of Africa, as well as the scores for numerous other films. He's the winner of five Academy Awards for Best Music Original Song for Born Free in 66, Best Original Musical Score for Born Free, Best Original Score for The Lion in Winter, Best Original Score for Out of Africa, and Dances with Wolves, as well as nominations for Best Original Score for Chaplin in 1992 and Mary Queen of Scots in 1971. In 2001, Barry became a Fellow of the British Academy of Songwriters, and in 2005, he was made a Fellow of the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. He passed away in Oyster Bay, Long Island, on January 30th, 2011, at the age of 77. A good time to take an intermission. Let's all go to the lobby. 
Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Settle back now, content, comfortable, well-fed, and ready for some fine entertainment. Is everybody happy? Then let's go. It's showtime. What do you think you're doing? Dancing with you. And we're back. We don't even know each other. I know everything about you. Yes, I'm sure you do. Richard and Elise share a dance. No, 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 you don't understand. I think I do. No, no, please, please don't leave. I have no idea. I have no idea how far I've come to be with you. So while Elise and Richard forge a friendship that is consistently being thwarted by Robinson, let's talk about the villain of this piece, the great Christopher Plummer. Widely regarded as one of the best actors to ever come out of Canada, Arthur Christopher Plummer was born on December 13, 1929 in Toronto, Ontario. Plummer made his professional acting debut in 1948 with Ottawa's Stage Society, after which he performed roles as an apprentice artist with the Montreal Repertory Theatre alongside fellow apprenticing actor William Shatner. In 1953, Edward Everett Horton hired Plummer to appear as Gerard in the roadshow production of Nina, a role originated on Broadway by David Niven. Plummer made his Broadway debut in January 1953 in The Star Cross Story, a show that closed on opening night. In 1955, he appeared in his first Broadway hit, The Lark, and then appeared in Ilya Kazan's successful Broadway production of Archibald MacLeish's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, J.B., for which Plummer was nominated for his first Tony as Best Actor in a Play. He then would appear in a myriad of stage productions, including an adaptation of Medea, Julius Caesar, The Tempest, and Henry V. Plummer made his debut at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in 1956, playing the title role in Henry V, and he played the title role in Hamlet at Stratford in 1957. He would also have roles in The Winter's Tale, Henry IV Part I, and Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing. During this stretch, Plummer would also do early film and television roles, but his heart was always on the stage. His film career began in 1958 when Sidney Lumet cast him in Stage Struck. Next up was Nicholas Ray's Wind Across the Everglades, and then he did not appear in film for six years until he played the Roman Emperor Commodus in the fall of the Roman Empire in 1964. But it was in 1965 that Plummer was cast in the role that he would be remembered for the rest of his career, a role, Plummer would say, that haunted him for the rest of his career. That of Captain Von Tropp in the box office smash The Sound of Music opposite Julie Andrews. This film made cinematic history becoming the all-time top-grossing film, passing Gone with the Wind. He said he found all aspects of making this film unpleasant, except working with Andrews. He then would appear in the films Inside Daisy Clover in 65, Triple Cross in 66, playing Field Marshal Rommel in Night of the Generals in 67, Oedipus in a film adaptation of Oedipus the King in 68, Squadron Leader Colin Harvey in The Battle of Britain in 69, The Duke of Wellington in the film Waterloo in 70, Sir Charles Lytton in The Return of the Pink Panther in 75. And then in 75, he appeared as author Rudyard Kipling in The Man Who Would Be King, 
which starred Sean Connery and Michael Caine. A marvelous motion picture. He He would win an Emmy Award playing the lead role in the TV miniseries Arthur Haley's The Money Changers in 1976, and then would play Herod in Jesus of Nazareth in 77. But again, it really was the theater that was his love. He would appear in an adaptation of Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey Into Night. He played the title character of Cyrano on Broadway in 1973, which was a musical adaptation of the 1897 play. For this performance, Plummer won the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical. He then would appear in Neil Simon's The Good Doctor on Broadway, an adaptation of Arthur Miller's After the Fall in 1974, and Drinks Before Dinner with the New York Shakespeare Festival in 1978. Keeping with the stage, he starred on Broadway in Othello in 1982, playing Iago opposite James Earl Jones. And for this performance, he received a Tony Award nomination for Best Actor in a Play. In 88, he played the title role in Macbeth, with Glenda Jackson playing his leading lady. And in 1994, he was in a revival of Harold Pinter's No Man's Land with Jason Robards. And for this performance, Plummer received his fourth Tony Award nomination. He had great success in 1997, playing John Barrymore in the play Barrymore, and this would garner him his second Tony Award. Back to films, in 1979, he was a tremendous Sherlock Holmes in Murder by Decree, was Brian in a TV movie adaptation of the wonderful play The Shadow Box in 1980, played William Fawcett Robinson in Somewhere in Time in 1980, was in the popular miniseries The Thornbirds in 1983, portrayed Leo Argyle in the Agatha Christie mystery Ordeal by Innocence in 84, was in the very bizarre Dreamscape in 84, voiced the character of Henri in An American Tale in 1986, was Whirly in Dragnet, starring Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks in 87, was the voice of the Grand Duke in the animated film Rock-A-Doodle in 91, Chang, the Shakespeare-spouting Klingon in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country in 91, Chaplin Gill in Malcolm X in 92, Detective John Mackey in an adaptation of the Stephen King novel Dolores Claiborne in 95, Dr. Goines in 12 Monkeys opposite Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis in 95, played Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes fame in The Insider in 1999, was Norman Thayer in a TV movie adaptation of On Golden Pond in 2001, Dr. Rosen in the Oscar-winning A Beautiful Mind in 2001, and would appear in the films Syriana, Inside Man, The Lake House, Man in the Chair, and would voice the character of Charles Muntz in the wonderful Pixar animated film Up in 2009. He finally would receive an Academy Award nomination for his performance as Leo Tolstoy in The Last Station in 2009, and would follow that up with an Oscar win for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role for Beginners in 2010. Back to the stage, in 2002 he was King Lear in a well-received production of Lear at New York City's Lincoln Center. He would win another Tony for playing Henry Drummond in the 2007 revival of Inherit the Wind. And then Plummer would return to the Stratford Festival in the summer of 2010 in The Tempest as the lead character Prospero. And then again in the summer of 2012 in the one-man show A Word or Two, an autobiographical exploration of his love of literature. Back on film, he would star as Scrooge in The Man Who Invented Christmas in 2017 and then would get an Oscar nomination as his turn 
as J. Paul Getty in All the Money in the World. An interesting performance as the film had already finished filming with Kevin Spacey as J. Paul Getty. But then a scandal forced the producers and director Ridley Scott to reshoot every scene with Spacey in it, replacing him with Plummer. In 2019, he played Harlan Thromby in the murder mystery Knives Out, and Plummer would die at his home in Weston, Connecticut at the age of 91. Not entirely unacquainted with the achievements of the American stage in the past decade. Perhaps I've seen one. No, I doubt it. I also doubt very much that I shall ever see one graced by Miss McKenna. All right, well, that took longer than I thought it would. So let's get caught up. Uh, Richard and Elise go for a walk, bond and form a friendship that will blossom into a love. Now, I gotta admit, Jane Seymour is easy to fall in love with during these scenes, despite Christopher Reeve's performance. And perhaps my 20-year-old self did fall in love with Jane Seymour. So, while this plays out, let's speak about the exquisite Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour was born Joyce Penelope Wilhelmina Frankenberg on February 15, 1951 in Uxbridge, Middlesex, England, now part of Greater London. In 1969, she appeared uncredited in her first film, Richard Attenborough's Oh, What a Lovely War. In 1970, Seymour appeared in her first major film role in the war drama The Only Way. In 1973, she gained her first major television role as Emma in the successful 1970 series The Oneidin Line. And she appeared as the female lead Prima in the two-part television miniseries Frankenstein, The True Story. Prima would also be known as The Bride of Frankenstein. And she appeared as Winston Churchill's girlfriend, Pamela Plowden, in Young Winston. In 1973, Seymour achieved international fame in her role as Bond girl Solitaire in the first Roger Moore James Bond film, Live and Let Die. She is consistently ranked in the top 10 of Bond girls of all time. In 1975, she was cast as Princess Farah in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger and appeared as Serena in the Battlestar Galactica film and the first five episodes of the television series in the late 70s. She then returned to the big screen of the comedy Oh Heavenly Dog, opposite Chevy Chase. In 1980, Seymour appeared on Broadway in the stage play Amadeus, opposite Ian McKellen and Tim Curry. And at the same time, she was given the role of young theater actress Elise McKenna in the period romance Somewhere in Time. In 1981, she starred in her first TV miniseries, East of Eden, and would kind of be known as the queen of the miniseries through the 80s. She was in the TV miniseries The Sun Also Rises in 1984, and won an Emmy Award for the TV movie Onassis, The Richest Man in the World in 1988, playing Maria Callas. In 1988, she was in the TV miniseries War and Remembrance, as well as the TV miniseries Memories of Midnight. In the 1990s, Seymour earned popular and critical praise for her role as Dr. Michaela Mike Quinn in the television series Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. And in 1998, she starred as Anna Robinson in the new Swiss Family Robinson. After that, she became known as a TV movie star, starring in Murder in the Mirror in 2000, Yesterday's Children, Blackout, and Heart of a Stranger, along with one, two, three Dr. Quinn Medicine Women TV movies. 
She had a recurring role in the TV series Smallville in 2005 and starred as Dr. Victoria Stangle in the TV series Modern Men in 2006. Since then, she's done mostly guest starring roles on TV series like Castle, My Name is Earl, and Marple, and was a semi-regular as Colleen Bash, the mother of one of the title role characters in Franklin and Bash. In 2018, she appeared as Janet in the TV series Let's Get Physical, and is a regular on both the TV series The Kaminsky Method and Be Positive. Oh, and also, she has one brown eye and one green eye. Now, the next part of this film is pretty standard romance. The two fall in love, but their love is threatened by a force that is trying to keep them apart. It is this part of the film that will make or break your love of this film. But Jane Seymour's performance certainly helps. The man of my dreams has almost faded now. And what man is that, miss? The one I have created in my mind. The sort of man each woman dreams of in the deepest and most secret reaches of her heart. I can almost see him now before me. What would I say to him if he were really here? Yeah, 20-year-old Andy fell in love with Jane Seymour here. And maybe modern-day Andy is feeling a little pang as well. I've lived without it all my life. Is it any wonder then I failed to recognize you? Robinson asks to meet with Collier. You have any notion how many years I have been with Miss McKenna? She was 16 at the time. There she was, on that dingy stage, in that pathetic play. Total radiance. It only took seconds for me to realize exactly what she had to be. Mrs. Robinson? Do you actually believe that I have nurtured her, cared for her, molded, taught, developed her for all these years, merely to groom a wife? He wants Lise not as his lover, but for her career and the riches she can raise for him. Are you incapable of understanding that she has it within herself to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest actress of her generation? Robinson has a couple of thugs beat up Collier. You came here, I've known from the start. You came to destroy her. God, you're out of your mind. Oh. Elise is worried about There's Richard. No sense at all. What could have happened to him? Elise confronts Robinson. Where is he? What have you done to him? I've done nothing, McKenna. Mr. Collier has left. That's all. What do you mean? Gone from the hotel and your life. I love him, and he's going to make me very happy. What difference can that make now? He's gone. I'll find him, William. Don't you dare try to stop me. Despite Robinson's attempts, Richard and Elise reunite.
There's that music again. Richard and Elise seem destined to a long and loving life together. You will marry me, won't you? <coughs> Sorry. What? Sure. I was just laughing at the way you asked, that's all. When? I don't understand. Nobody seems to like my suit. How can you blame them? Oh, wait a minute. I think my suit is terrific. I mean, what's wrong with this? I don't care. So what if it's 10 years old? Oh, at least 15. 15? Mm-hmm. Well... I think it's fabulous. <laughs> Look, machine. The sleeves fit. It's pretty good because my arms are about nine feet long. And got pockets everywhere. I can pull rabbits out of here. Oh yeah, this is the best part. There's a special coin compartment for emergency. Richard pulls a 1979 coin out of his pocket, thus breaking the time travel spell and sending him back to 1988. He wakes up back in his time. No. 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 And is heartbroken. June 29, 1912. June 29, He tries to go back to 1912, but to no avail. I'm back. I'm back. He eventually dies of a broken heart and is reunited with Elise in the afterlife as the music swells. Postscript. Somewhere in Time was released on October 30th, 1980 to generally positive reviews, but failed at the box office. Although the film was a disappointment in the United States, it was a huge hit in Asia. It was one of the highest grossing films in China and played in Hong Kong for 18 months. It has since been hailed as a cult classic, thanks in large part to being one of the first films to be shown on cable television. I know that is where I discovered it. While Richard Collier and Elise McKenna are walking together on the grounds of the Grand Hotel, the extras in the background move to and from poses of classical impressionist paintings, Monet, Stevens, etc. A nice little touch. Director Jeannot Zwork had a slight problem directing the scenes between Christopher Plummer and Christopher Reeve, in that whenever he said Chris, both men would respond with yes? Zwork resolved this by addressing Plummer as Mr. Plummer and addressing Reeve as Bigfoot. William H. Macy has a blink-or-you-miss-it cameo as a critic in one of his first film appearances. 
Christopher Reed's 1912 hat is on display in the check-in lobby of the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island. The small music box Teresa Wright's character has in her home of the Grand Hotel is also on display there. Author Richard Matheson, whose novel Bid Time Return was adapted into this film, he was also one of the principal screenwriters of the great late 50s, early 60s TV anthology series The Twilight Zone, makes an exceedingly rare on-screen appearance here. He is the man in a top hat who sees Christopher Reeve's character leaving the men's room, his face covered with small bandages from shaving cuts, and remarks, Astonishing. The International Network of Somewhere in Time Enthusiasts, Insight, an official fan club, was formed in 1990 and continues to meet regularly. During the month of October, the Grand Hotel hosts a Somewhere in Time weekend with events such as a large screen screening of the film, panel discussions of some of the film's principals and crew, and a costume ball for members dressed in Edwardian attire. A musical version of this movie premiered on stage in Portland, Oregon in May 2013. And what did the Bank of Arquas think of this film? Well, it's a bit of a cult classic for me as well. On a rewatch, I have to admit that it looks like it's directed by a person who does a lot of TV films. And Christopher Reeve's performance, if I'm to be honest, isn't quite right tonally for this film. But gosh, I fell in love with Jane Seymour all over again, and that music is haunting. So I give it a B, seven stars out of 10. next time on the Bank of Marquis Movies Podcast. I'm Tony Stark. I build neat stuff. I got a great girl. And occasionally, save the world. So why can't I sleep? You elected me on a single platform. I will defend this country at all costs. The Mandarin must be stopped. You don't know who I am. Revenge. 
And that's what's coming up next on the Bank of Marquis Movie Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, email us at bankofmarquis at gmail.com. That's B-A-N-K-O-F-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S at gmail.com. And check out the website, www.bankofmarquis.com. And until next time... I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching.